John chapter 8, I'm just going to read the first two verses and then we'll get going. It says in verse 30 of John chapter 8, As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And so that's something that we need to consider ourselves, not so much others, although we'll tend to do that, but are we the Lord's disciples? Are we truly born-again believers? Are we avid learners? Are we obedient to his call in our lives? And, well, again, there's so many people that have that false front, and Jesus is going to be confronting them tonight as well as we read further. I don't know how many years ago, but there was a company named Crescent, Crescent came out with a wrench that could be made to open to various sizes. Instead of having a whole set of wrenches, you could get away with just one. Other companies, they copied the design, and they were called Crescent Wrenches as well after the first one, but the proper name, the generic name, is Open End Wrench. See, the first one was a Crescent Wrench. All the others were just copies, but we call them Crescent we do the same thing with many things. You'll go to a restaurant, regardless of what kind of soda they sell, a lot of times we'll just ask for a Coke. And they'll respond usually, well, we just have Pepsi and you don't really care. You just want a Coke. A skill saw, channel locks, vice grips, or a lazy boy recliner chair that just kind of adopted the original name. The point is, so many times the identity of something is associated with the original, even if it doesn't live up to the original's standards. Now, here in America, when they did the last census, I, don't, I recall when it happened, I don't recall how long ago it happened, but 85% of the population of the United States of America claimed to be Christian. If you think that's a good thing, wait until you hear at the criteria that was used to determine what a Christian is. Christianity, as defined for the purpose of the census, includes all who claim to be Christian. This includes varying degrees of religious activity from essentially non-participating but still nominal Christians to active full communicants and lifelong clergy. These numbers also include adherents of different divisions within Christianity, including Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, Pentecostals, Jehovah Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, and others, or Latter-day Saints, not Later-day Saints, Latter-day Saints. The problem is... The surveyors, as well as those who are surveyed in most of America, they're ignorant of the biblical criteria of what it means to become born again, to truly call yourself a Christian. And so if we were to put such a survey together, what would be the questions asked? So I put a short survey together based upon some traditional necessities of truly being a Christian, considered to be a Christian. First of all, the first question that you would need to ask is, do you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Lord and Savior? Well, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? He must be your Lord and your Savior. You must come to the understanding that you are a sinner, that you have sinned from the womb and continue to sin even to that day. You are, well, just as Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you're a representation definitely of that. But you come to the knowledge that you're a sinner, but you also come to the knowledge that Jesus is a Savior, and it's through belief that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men 
by which we must be saved. So it comes to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, second question, at least that I would ask, do you believe that the scriptures are the infallible word of God? Because this isn't to be just anybody's good idea. This has to be what God has given to mankind. 2 Timothy 3.15, the holy scriptures are that which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, do you believe in one God who reveals himself in three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible tells us that God is one, but we're also told that, well, obviously the Father in heaven is God. We're told that the Son is God, and we're told that the Holy Spirit is God. And so understanding that the word of God is infallible, the Trinity is the only thing that makes proper biblical sense. And then fourthly, do you believe in the virgin, virgin birth, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? These things are essential that we must understand and we must know so that we know that we believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 17, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the virgin birth at Christ, there was something unique about it, that God became incarnate so that man would know and understand. But that same God would need to die because the price had to be paid for our sinful nature. You couldn't pay that price. I couldn't pay the price. Nobody else could pay the price. But proof of that price paid is seen in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. If he stayed dead, then he was paying the penalty for his sins. But since he was resurrected, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is the first fruits of many to come. The first fruits were always the first with the expectation of more. Jesus Christ being the first fruits, we are that expectation of many more. Nobody we know is a born-again believer because of religious affiliation or because of their country, their parents, or anybody else. There was the man Nicodemus that Jesus said, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And if you remember in chapter 2, the last verse, Jesus knew what was in all of men. Entering into chapter 3, it's as if they're presenting the perfect man, this man Nicodemus. He was really religious. He was a Pharisee. He was pretty powerful and exceptionally educated. But Jesus looked at him. It says Jesus answered him. He never even asked a question, but the Lord knew what was upon his heart. And he told them flat out, you must be born again. Your religion is not enough. Your education is not enough. The power and your achievements in this life will never be enough. You simply must be born again through the power of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the word of God. Again, you should be able to look at yourself as an example of that and that God achieved the change within your life as somebody spoke the word of God to you. And we know that it was the Holy Spirit that convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And as that happened and you believed and received Christ, and again, received Christ, or maybe I should say surrendered your life to Christ, laid down yourself, laid down your beliefs and everything else and came into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you were truly born again. First John chapter 5, verse 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So again, the Lord speaking, and we have the Lord speaking in the group of these people. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus Christ is in the temple area, and he's in the midst of them. 
this was one of the required feasts that a man would have to present himself to Jerusalem. So there was quite a few people. There was probably, with the young men or the men and their families, there was millions of people in Jerusalem at this time and probably just thousands and thousands in the temple area at this time. And so we've got this man that people have heard of. They've heard of the miracles and the miraculous things that he has done and said, and he's gathered an audience, and they've been hearing the words and the debates that he's having with the religious community. Verse 30 says, As he spoke these words, many believed in him. As he spoke these words, again, just think of these things. They're hearing the words of God directly from the mouth of God. Now, people hear the same today based upon the Holy Spirit as he works through us, but nonetheless, to hear these words spoken from the mouth of Jesus Christ. And it says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's important that they have the assurance of being a Christian, that they have the assurance that something happened that day. Something happened that day as this man spoke, and we believe. That's why I encourage you to examine your life in that day that that man spoke, the day that somebody shared the word of God, that you could look at the timeline of your life and realize on that day something profound really happened because it would be such a tragedy if Nobody ever challenged you. If you didn't challenge yourself to, to look and to see and, and to know that, know that, you're, that you're in Christ, that, you, that you're truly born again, that you're just skating along as everybody else skates along. I was talking, we were talking um, with the teachers before services. I was doing devotions with them, and that's what I was doing for the majority of my life. I, I, I was rendering the word of God by no effect through my lack of belief. I was skating along in my religion, but my religion was going to lead to my destruction. I had to open up my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I did, when somebody preached the word and I believed, something profound happened that day. I, I didn't live the rest of my life in perfection, but I can look at that point and I could see a change that was worked in my life. In 1 John 5, 4, it says, For whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so Jesus tells them that you must also abide in my word. Abide in my word. This is a life that reflects God's desire for all to see, for everybody else to see, to see again that change, that I would continue on in the word of God. And so the only way to abide in the word of God, continue in the word of God, is to know the word of God. So we dedicate the reason for the existence of this church to the Word of God. We gathered together for services. Somebody called me not too long ago. Do you have Bible studies there? And you go, yeah, we have Bible studies. And I gave him the times and everything. Okay, do you have your church services too? And it's kind of, well, I know where they're coming from. They're coming from the traditional thing. But that is our church service. Why? What else are we going to do? What else are we going to do that is going to draw us closer to God than getting into the Word of God? I mean, what kind of ceremony can we do or whatever it might be that is going to draw us closer to the Lord? And there's nothing. There's no name under heaven by which men must be saved. And the only way that we'll know him is through God's word. In John fifteen ten, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
So I have to read the words of the Lord to know the words of the Lord so that I do the words of the Lord. And it's important to know, to understand the truth and the freedom that it brings. See, because we're all imperfect people, we can again be like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes with fig leaves plastered all over us. But God has set us free. He's taken, out of, he's taken us out of that attempt to cover our shame. And the picture of Adam and Eve when they've sinned is the separation from God, but man's attempt to hide the shame. And how does man attempt to hide the shame? Generally speaking today is through some sort of religious routine. But we have been called out of that. We have come into that relationship. And see, if you and I have an issue between one another, let's just say you did me wrong because we know I would never do any of you wrong. But you did me wrong. You're, you're bad people. And, and you did me wrong. And there was always that issue and we never dealt with it. There always would be that, that kind of uncomfortableness between us. And then one day, finally, one of us got together, probably me because I'm the more spiritual here. We, we would come together and we would repent or we'd at least deal with it. We'd deal with it and then we'd agree, okay, it's dealt with. We don't, have to, we don't have to deal with this anymore. And there would be that freedom within our relationship. How much more so when we were at enmity with God? Every time God would come walking in the coolness of the day, we'd be of the mindset to hide. Is he mad? Is he upset today? Because, again, that's what traditional religion told me, that God was mad and basically you better hide. And so I hid in traditional religion. But then I realized God wasn't mad. God loved me. He loved me to such a degree that he would sacrifice his only begotten son. And it's all I have to do is believe in him and I would not perish but have everlasting life. And when you realize the magnitude of the love of God, you came out of hiding. You stripped off everything that, that covered that shame so that that shame would be exposed and that shame would be dealt with. And now, instead of being at enmity with God, even though God still loved me while we were at enmity with one another, but even then, I'm no longer at enmity with God. Now I'm a child of God. Child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. A disciple and a learner and a teacher is one who causes the disciples to understand these things, to know these things, to, to realize the love that God has and the fullness of the relationship that we are able to have. Verse 33, they answered him. We know they is, you know, it's the religious community, but just think of the they as the self-righteous. The self-righteous, and self-righteousness is one of the, the, the worst diseases, spiritually speaking, that a person can have because if you're depending upon your self-righteousness, which in the sight of God does not exist, instead of the righteousness of Christ upon you, you'll perish in your sins. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most surely I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's the worst thing that I see in, in, in a born-again believer's life. They have the freedom, but they've never realized the freedom. They've never embraced the freedom that we have. The freedom that I have is to boldly come before God, boldly live a life in the face of God, understanding that he is not going to give me judgment, but he is going to give me grace, and he's going to give me eternal life. 
And so as I'm living this life, it's no longer under the burden that sin has placed upon them. That burden's been lifted off, and we're completely free. I'm free despite or in spite of the fact that I'm a, and you can go through the various lists of sins within the scriptures because it's a definition of us all apart from Christ. But again, we've been justified. God chooses to see us just as if we've never sinned. I'm looking forward to after service tonight. Why? Because the mocks went to the beach today, and now they're at our house even right now. If you don't know who the mocks are, they're my grandchildren. They probably brought their mother along with them too. But the kids are there and looking forward to them. They're very imperfect people, but I love them. And I see them just as if they have never sinned. And so we have the self-righteous defending their position concerning spiritual matters here by stating that they are children of Abraham. Children of Abraham or children of anything else is going to do you absolutely no good. You die and you go to heaven and you say, I'm a child of Calvary Chapel, Ontario. If that's all you got, it's not going to do you any good. You're not getting in. My kids could say, I'm the, children, the child of, of Pastor Mike. That's not going to do them any good. See, the problem with Pastor Mike is he couldn't save himself. He got in through grace. He didn't deserve to be there, but God allowed him, allows him to be there. Now the question is, are you a child of God or a child of Mike? If you're a child of Mike, you're not getting into heaven. But if you're a child of God, God has opened eternity to all. So it's only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what God's plan for salvation for mankind was. And again, that it was pointed towards this day, if you will, for the Jews when they had the opportunity, the self-righteous, as they had the opportunity to stand before Christ and hear from Christ, just the same as you. I mean, you weren't physically standing before them, but as somebody was sharing the word, it's as if you were standing before him. They blinded themselves. Why? Because they have perverted the word of God. Get into that in a little bit, why that happened. But they perverted the word of God so that when God is standing right before him, they can't see him. Now, I've perverted the word of God through my own thoughts and imaginations, but the Holy Spirit was there, and the Holy Spirit gave me wisdom, and the Holy Spirit gave me understanding. He gave me that opportunity to make the decision of based upon the truth that was given to me. And I just look back, and it's like dodging a bullet. I'm glad I ducked at that time, or, man, I, I came that close from eternity apart from God. And I thank God that he reached down and, and, and that he saved me. I thank God that he didn't give up after the first rejection or the second, third, fourth, or however many rejections when the truth came. And even when I was a Catholic in the Catholic Church, they were reading the scripture. I was just trying to stay awake for the hour, get through it and get back on with my life. But there was always that opportunity that was presented to me. And in my natural state, there was always the refusal of it. But God never gave up. Verses 37 and 38. Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So right here is the main issue between Messiah and Israel. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Now, there's a huge advantage in that. There's many blessings that are contained in that. There's all of the promises that God has given Israel and everything that he was going to do for Israel. Jesus was going to come from Abraham. And Messiah is there even at that moment. He says, but you seek to kill me. 
So from Abraham all the way through to that day, all the prophecies that pointed to that day, there he is. And what's the mindset of self-righteous Israel because of their traditions and all and the perversion of God's word? Is to kill Christ off, is to kill him off. The problem is if they are successful in that according to how they're determining to kill him off, you know, setting aside the cross, then man is lost in his sins and his, his trespasses. And what's the main way that man kills Christ off? Again, look at here. Because my word has no place in you. That's the way you kill Christ. See, the cross, that was the Father killing Christ. That was punishment from the Father that was due to you. But you have that opportunity to kill Christ as well. Not upon the cross, but through unbelief of the word of God. And so, as the word of God came... I was constantly killing Christ off out of my life, but Jesus was bigger than all of that. Now, there's some people that will permanently kill Christ off in their life. That would be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, ignoring the leading of the Holy Spirit, so that in the day that they die, they will receive judgment because they have not given their hearts over to the Lord. But you see this rich picture here in John chapter 8, verses 37 and 38, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. There is an advantage in that, but not how you think it is. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So he's starting to bring this contrast of fathers into the equation. We saw it, I believe it was last week, in verse 19, it says, Then they said to him, Where is your father? Because most people knew that Mary, well, she was not impregnated by Joseph. And not understanding the virgin birth and all that we know occurred, it was always assumed that Jesus was illegitimate, if you will, to say it nicely. And so they're saying, so where is your father? They're thinking they're better than he is because he doesn't, they think he doesn't know who their father is. And so what Jesus is saying here, though, is, this is the plan of the Father from all along. And the Old Testament word that had been given from the beginning, this is right now standing before you is the fruition of the plan. See, I speak what I have seen with my Father. Here, here it is, but you do what you have seen with your Father. Their actions reveal their heart, and their heart reveals their lineage, their background, if you will. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, it says, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And look at the history of Israel and we see that that is so true. See, the problem with with the Jews, with the self-righteous and all, and again, this particular case, depending upon their lineage or whatever it is that man will depend upon, they understood, they misunderstood. They misunderstood what set Abraham apart. They misunderstood what made Abraham special and what truly makes somebody to be his child. Now, go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to bounce around. You can stay rooted here over in Genesis. But right now, Genesis chapter 22, this is the section of Scripture that God commanded Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, and to make a sacrifice of him. Most of you know the story. Abraham was obedient all the way to the point that he raised the knife over his son, 
ready to sacrifice him, but God stopped him. Now, God knew what he would do from the beginning. This wasn't a test, so God could see that this guy really had faith, but it's a display of faith. God knows the faith that we have, but he desires the display of faith so that others would come and glean off of it. But because he displayed the faith, verse 16 of Genesis chapter 22, I'll start reading verse 15, then the angel of the Lord, now it's singular and noticed, the angel is capitalized, more than likely it's the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is in the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. They'll achieve victory over their enemies. Verse 18, in your seed, in your future generations, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The seed he's talking about is Jesus Christ. Now, the future generations are going to be blessed, but the blessings come because of Jesus Christ not just because they're of Abraham as far as this man is the father of the Hebrews, but this man, the blessings come because he is the father of faith. Faith. Not faith just for faith's sake, but faith in what God has told him. Look at the last couple of words. Because you obeyed my voice. Or to paraphrase that, because you obeyed my word. Because you obey God's word, Christ comes to life with not only in your life, but the future generations. Who has been affected because you're a born-again believer? And I mean affected, affected for faith in the Lord. Who? I mean, if nobody, you need to get busy. Matter of fact, if you need something, if you need a primer, we got door hangers. You can go out and talk to your neighbors. Um, but truly, there, there's got to be somebody, the generations, I mean, at least your immediate family, and then it affects the generations through that family. There is a national advantage to being a Jew without a doubt. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first. And so the oracles of God, the words of God first came to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Paul speaks of a tragic problem, though, in his day. He writes about it in the book of Romans in chapter 9. He sees the lack of faith through the national Jews in general. In chapter 9 of Romans, verse 1, Paul says, I tell you the truth. Now, when he says, I tell you the truth, it's not that he lied elsewhere, but he's just wanting to get our attention. Pay attention to this. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. See, many times Paul says, I'm going to wipe my feet of you people, and I'm going to the Gentiles. But that burden never really left his heart. And the idea is, man, these, these people are, are so close. Have you ever had anybody that you witnessed to that was, was so close? So close, but they would never take that final step of belief and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It can be so heartbreaking, so frustrating. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. He's saying, it's my desire. It, it, I believe this, or I feel this to such a great... I'd give him my own salvation for these people. Now, we know that 
that's impossible. That's part of the point I've been talking about. Nobody else can get you into heaven, but he's just expressing his heart because they're so close. That I were a curse from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, these are all their advantages, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, Christ came through Israel, who is overall the eternally blessed God, amen. But it is not that in the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. So here he's backing up with Jesus is speaking of back in John chapter 8. See, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're truly a child of Abraham. Yeah, physically you are, but spiritually you're not. Matter of fact, spiritually speaking, we're children of Abraham because Abraham came to believe through faith. We come to believe in faith. We're all of the same family. So they're missing the point back in John chapter 8. They're missing the point by a mile. If you want to be of your father Abraham, know this. Even Abraham needed to be born again. He came from a father that was an idol worshiper and from an ungodly portion of the world as we all have come from. What was so special about Abraham? Well, if you're still in John, I'm sorry, Genesis 22, turn over to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 and 6. He just achieved a great thing. He just gave tithes. He went and um, rescued his nephew Lot and uh, defeated the confederation of kings that came and brought the people of that area into bondage. Melchizedek came upon the scene and he tied to him and all of this. But verse 15 brings us back. Those were good works, but this brings us back to faith. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord. Now again, there's that term. We so think of him speaking to God and we can so easily miss the boat, but it's always about the word of the Lord. And so after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a, in a vision, Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said to the Lord God, said to the Lord, what will you give me, seeing as I go childless, and the heart of uh, the hair of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now when it says Abram, Abram means the father of many, and right now, he's not the father of any. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring, indeed one, <clears throat> excuse me, indeed one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then verse 6 is the point. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now just think about that. There's this old man. He's in his 90s. And one day God, speaking of the word of the Lord, comes to him, and he keeps telling him about these going to be the father of many matter of fact when he calls himself abraham that means father of many nations but right now he's got nobody in this servant eliezer which is his favorite you would kind of make that your heir you would kind of make that the child you never had and so he said this is all i got and god says no you're going to have a lot more than that now have you ever been up to the mountains somewhere we went backpacking a few years ago 
and uh, we were up in the high Sierras and laying on a rock in the middle of the lake at 9 o'clock at night and just looking and seeing the layers and layers of stars. And so I can imagine when God is showing Abraham that, and so you see all of these stars, so shall your dependents be. And he believed that. It's not so much that he believed that, but he believed in the word of God. And the word of God was necessary. The word of God is all that was necessary because it was then that he was accounted for him for righteousness. Accounted for him, it was put into his account. Abraham, and see, this is where the Jews are missing the mark. Abraham, at this point, isn't righteous. When it says accounted for you, that means it's put into your account. We know it's put into our heavenly account that when I go into, come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness will be placed upon me and I will be completely and totally right in the sight of God. Now, I'm looked at at this point as if I have never sinned, but I have sinned. But my righteousness is accounted for me. When I go to be with the Lord, then I will have the righteousness of God. How do we get that? Simply through belief. He believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And so you can fast forward back to John chapter 8 and say, guys, if you're depending upon righteousness now, you're in big trouble. And if you're using Abraham, Abraham, his righteousness was accounted for a future point. But as of right now, just as Abraham believed, Jesus' point is, you need to believe as well. Jesus is saying, we'll look at verse, we'll go ahead and turn back to John chapter 8. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. And again, we have this picture of the self-righteous killing off Christ because, again, they fail at the point of the word. Verses 38 through 40. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And the works of Abraham we just saw were belief. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Abraham, who they say they have the same nature and essence of, as he did, didn't do this, didn't do what? Well, What's happening? Jesus is appearing and speaking in their presence, and they want to kill him. He says, Abraham didn't do that. What, you know, that, that can be kind of confusing. Later on, he'll, he'll, he'll even dig a little bit deeper in that point. But we're not going to turn there because of time. But in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 and 16 through 19, Abraham came into the presence of Christ. And what did he do? He invited Christ in. He accepted Jesus Christ. I mean, this was a man traveling. He was traveling with a couple of angels, but nonetheless, he, he opened, it, opened up his home and brought the Lord in, and he dined with him. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come into him and dine with him, and he with me. I'll have, and again, this has got mid-Eastern connotations of hospitality, but if you bring me in, we'll have that intimate fellowship together. And again, that's what, look back at your life, and there was that constant knocking on the door. Matter of fact, you walk away from the Lord, he starts knocking on the door once again, and he never stops. He never stops and he never lets go. He'll always be there and he'll always care and he'll always love. 
Now the Jews desire to kill him, and everyone who refuses and tries to suppress the word of God today is in that same camp. Who then is the father of those who would kill Christ and hinder his word? Verses 41 through 47. You do the deeds of your father. So Jesus brought this contrast in between his father and their father. They have a nature and an essence that is different. They're not children of God. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. Again, there's that little dig at Jesus and his birth. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Again, understanding comes from the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They're not listening for the word of God. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Now this is pretty, telling these people, these are the respected religious community. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. We know they need to be born again. And so the devil, the devil, we, we, we've, Hollywood, I guess, we have, have made this perception of the devil that is not biblically accurate. His head doesn't spin around. His eyes don't roll back. He doesn't have horns or a tail. He's not this, you know, what we perceive demonic to be. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians tells us he perceives or presents himself as an angel of light. Why? Because he's a deceiver. He's a, he looks like something good and something beneficial. Look at the cults. Apart from, if you didn't know the truth, and before I got saved, I thought the same thing. These people are ultra-spiritual. We were at Sal's, uh, my wife and I went to sit with Sal's wife yesterday as he was going through that procedure in L.A., and it was right across from the Scientology building. The place is huge compound. It's got a cross on top. So if you were walking by and you didn't have any clue, you'd think, wow, that's a very religious place. And then they had some kind of thing right next to it, the Church of Self-Awareness, I think it was called. And again, it kind of looked like a Russian Orthodox thing. And you would think, okay, well, there's a church. There's a very spiritual place. No, those are very dark places. But they look real good from the outside. Satan is an angel of light. To understand the devil and his ways, to understand who their fathers are, you've got to see who the devil truly is. Father is one who infuses his own spirit or personality into those whom he's been given stewardship over, who actuates and governs their minds, has great influence. My father, I would imagine your father, who's around and all, had great influence into your life. This could be a very beneficial thing. It could also be something done to your detriment as well. And so their father, Jesus speaks of three main attributes. He's a murderer, he's a deceiver, and he has his own resources. Murderer, because he leads them away from truth, and the truth is the only thing able to give them eternal life. A deceiver, 
Well, that's just the way he works. That's the way he worked in the beginning. It's the way he continues to work today. He's not very creative. He works the same way, as we'll see in just a minute. And then his own resources. What are his resources? Well, just real quick, we've gone through this before. God creates everything and looks at everything that he's created, and it's good. Angels were created. Devil's an angel. He was created at that point. He looked at everything. Everything is good. Man is created. And when man is created, he forms man with his hands. He breathes the breath of life into man. There's great intimacy. He speaks of creation, but then chapter 2 is dedicated to the creation of man. And you see how special man is in the sight of God. And then all of a sudden you enter into chapter 3 and there's the devil. And so where did the devil fall from heaven? What happened? We don't know because we're not specifically told. But I would imagine there was jealousy. It's believed, and Scripture seems to back it up, that the devil was the worship leader up in heaven. He probably had designs upon, well, he did have designs, we're told in Isaiah chapter 14, and even God's position. But now all of a sudden this other being enters in, and what happens when somebody gets the attention? Devils are, I mean, uh, angels are just ministering spirits. There was this seed of jealousy and pride entered in. God's affection was upon this new creation, mankind, and more than likely it was around that time when he was cast out, or at least he fell from heaven when God cast him out. And now what is he trying to do? He wants to get at God, but he can't get at God because God he's not God's equal. He's subservient to God. And so the best way to get at God is to get at God's love. What's the best way to get at me? To get at my wife, or to get at my kids, or even get at my grandkids. That would... You know, that, that would really get at me as far as myself. I, I've heard a lot, and I've gotten pretty callous to insults and all of that. But if you get at my wife or my kids, that could be very hurtful. In chapter 3, we see that he's a deceiver. Well, the serpent was more cutting than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And so he's entering his lies, and he's perverting the word of God here. Then the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then in verse 6, you see the resources that God has. So when the, I'm sorry, the devil has, the resources that the devil has. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And I would even say it's a resource of the devil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Who presented it to her? The devil did. This is the lust of the flesh. It says that it was pleasant to the eyes, obviously the lust of the eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise, it speaks of the pride of life. The same thing, the devil wanting to be God, is the same thing that caused Eve to stumble. And so we see this method and this mode of operation, and we see how effective this has been even throughout the ages. Satan has worked this very effectively, and he's got more children, I would say, than God does. Now, I went back to that survey at the beginning of the study, 
85% of Americans claimed on the survey or the census to be Christians. I did a little bit of math. If 85% of this nation believes that they are Christians, that means that there is over 224 million people that are born again. Now, I don't believe that's true, but 224 million people believe that they are Christians. Now, according to the parable of the sower, only 25% of those who say they are Christians more than likely really are. So that would be 56 million people who would really be saved. That means there's 168 million people who are deceived. Now, there's the 15% who either don't care or say they're atheists or whatever. We'll take them out of the equation. That's about 39 million people. But we have about the worst thing that could happen here with this 168 million people. They think they're right with God, and they're not. They think That's the worst thing you can do, is to convince somebody that he's right with God. Because if you convince somebody that he's right with God, he's not going to seek God out. And that's why Jesus is confronting these Pharisees and Sadducees, this religious community. They think they're right with God. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. He's not your father. The devil is your father because he has deceived you. And that's the ministry that we face. People who are out there that how many times, because I did this myself, you go out there, well, you know what, I'm a, and they fill in the blank. For me, it was, hey, I'm a Catholic. Now, I knew I wasn't right with God because I was a Catholic. I hoped I was, but I knew I wasn't. But I would use it because I don't want to hear it anymore kind of a thing. We were doing street witnessing, and I was standing before, out in front of Rite Aid. This was a couple years ago. And this young man came walking by, and I asked him, hey, if you died today, where would you go? And he kind of chuckled, but he stopped. And that's what you want. You just want to have the conversation. And he goes, I'm, I'm a Buddhist. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. And I go, I've never talked to a genuine Buddhist before. I've never had the opportunity to have a discussion with one. And he kind of smirked a little bit, but, you know, he, I, I believe he was being sincere. And I go, tell me, what do Buddhists believe? And then he started laughing. He goes, I don't really know. And I go, well, what kind of Buddhist are you? And he goes, well, I don't really practice it, but that's just what I am. And then I said, well, that's just what you tell people who want to share God with you because you don't want to hear about it. And he just kind of laughed and said yes, and then went on. And so the worst thing you can do is to even give somebody the, the absolute possibility that they're right with God. Now, this guy's parents were probably Buddhists, and I would imagine that's where he got it from. They probably drug him to whatever Buddhists do and, and all that other stuff. I think they do Kung Fu or something. Is that a TV show? I don't remember. But anyway, um, this man thought at least use that as a crutch to pretend that he was right with God somehow, some way, maybe. And again, we know that's a huge disservice. It's the deception of the devil. I was deceived by the devil for a vast, well, vast majority of my life up to the point that I got saved. And again, that's who we deal with today. 85%. Now, I don't think if they took, I think if they took that survey today, there wouldn't be 85%. But majority of the Americans believe for whatever reason that they're saved and they're not. And they're going to hell if they would die today. Does that bother you? Does that bother you? It bothered God to such a point that he would come and he would suffer so that people would get right with the Lord. Are you willing to suffer? You don't have to suffer to the capacity that Christ is in our, our nation today. It's all relative. How much suffering are we really going to experience? But are you willing to give of yourself 
so that people would come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The word is what they need because that's the point of separation. It's the word of God. Father, again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, and we just pray, Father, that we would be good stewards, that we would be found faithful with it. And, Lord, as we move forward in our lives and our Christian ministries, may we understand, Lord, that we march as an army, and we march against opposition. And the opposition isn't just directly confronting us all the time. He's also done sneak attacks, if you will, into the lives of those whom... Lord, you so desire to enter into. And so, Father, I pray that we'd be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, that you would enable us, Father, not to be good arguers or debaters, but, Father, we would just go and present your word. And so, Father, as we do that, then we will see your power come to pass, that we would see you working into the lives of others. And so, Father, just fill us with your spirit. Not only enable us to do these things, give us a passion to accomplish these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Tomorrow, we just today got our trailer delivered. This is the trailer that we've had for uh, the last two years. This will be the third year that we've had it. And we are going, I'm going to do the building of the float tomorrow. And then Saturday, we're going to be doing the decorating of the float. If you're able to come out and help, let us know. Now, if you're going to come out tomorrow... I don't work here by myself with ladies, so you know there, there will need to be other people. So if you want to come and help, just let me know. Give me a call first. And in case you don't know, the crisis line that's on the bulletin, you know where our information is, the crisis line is my cell phone. I won't be near my phone tomorrow because I'll be in the back. But anyway, if you want to help, you're welcome to come out and work with me. And then also on the 3rd of July, this Sunday, we're having a morning service. I'm going to be giving an Independence Day service on Sunday morning, and then Sunday evening we're going to be watching the movie Woodlawn, and we're going to be having an agape feast. Now, the agape feast is an hour before service. It's at 5 o'clock. If you show up at 6 o'clock, you're going to be hungry watching the movie, but if you show up at 5 o'clock, then you can be fat and happy. God bless you guys.